you know, ev everybody that we look back at, you know, they've, they've reinvented their lives, the, the, the lives that we look at. By the time their lives ended, the possibility of finding out more about them had gone and they enclosed that life and that life was closed around them in the model they wanted to leave behind. Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. My guest this week is Tim Hayward. He's published several books, including Food, DIY, Knife, The Cult, Craft, and Culture of the Cook's Knife, which has now been translated into eight languages. He's a regular panelist on BBC Radio 4's The Kitchen Cabinet, and he regularly is a critic of FT Magazine and the Financial Times Weekend Supplement. And he also has a restaurant uh, called Fitzbilly's, which he's promised to make me some kind of roll uh, with bacon in it, apparently. So I want to talk to Tim Hayward because he is just such a man of, of so many different talents, and he's a hell of a nice guy and really smart. And I found him because he profiled one of my favorite living writers, DBC Pierre, and it seemed like they had a hell of a good time. And uh, we talked about a lot of things with his career, you know, the, the rise of celebrity chefs and and how Anthony Bourdain spearheaded that effort and uh, it was just a really fun conversation he's just such an interesting guy and unlike a lot of writers um, I think the first thing that really smacks you in the head gobsmacks you in the head about Tim is the feeling of gratitude and that it's fun it's not performative it's not virtue <laughs> signaling um, he just seems really happy to be in the world and to be who he is in the world and, and grateful for it. And it, um, it's a little infectious. You come away from him and it's annoying because uh, you start thinking about all the things that you're grateful for. And that, that's hard for some of us who are pretty curmudgeonly. <laughs> so anyway, uh, this was just interesting. I don't know. It was a weird one to prepare for for me because he's, he's had a... a kind of a, just a finger in so many different things. And, and uh, yeah, so you just, I just didn't know where it would go. In any event, I hope you enjoy this conversation I had with Tim Hayward, this week's guest on Tourist Information. Well, I, I thought a good place to start was just, uh, I was researching you your COVID experience was disastrous. My brother just had something very similar about two weeks ago, mm. hospitalized. I, I just wondered, what is what is this apocalyptic-like setting been like for you? Oh, God. Um, so tr truly weird, because I, I didn't really know what was going on. Uh, at that point, the government in the UK were very, very keen on the idea that unless you have loss of smell and taste, and a high temperature and a dry cough, then you've got flu and for God's sake, don't bother the NHS. So I didn't. Uh, I went 10 days with my sort of pulse ox going down and down and down and my breathing getting worse and worse. But every morning I was getting up and going, yeah, I can still smell mustard. This is great. I'm fine. No problem. No temperature. And then uh, I felt I couldn't breathe one day and the ambulance turned up 10 minutes later. And um, I'm about seven minutes in that direction over there from one of the best hospitals in the UK, one of the best teaching hospitals. And they had me in there. And pretty much as I arrived on the front door, uh, I was taken straight into ITU. I, I lost consciousness and everything else. They woke me up for a couple of minutes to say, we're putting you to sleep. Um, and I was unconscious for 
14 days uh, in, a, in a coma. Um, and then when I came around, about another 14 days of, of uh, obviously being in isolation, but also because I was quite, uh, I was really delusional, massively, I mean, mad is really the correct term. Uh, and so 14 days in the special COVID, this is where we put the loonies with COVID ward, um, which was really quite disturbing. Uh, and at the end of that, it was okay. I, I was a bit twitchy for a few days, and I, I kept phoning my wife and saying, I need 5,000 pounds and a passport, meet me outside the hospital. I was convinced I was a, a spy. Uh, the whole, because all the way through the delusions, you get dreams and things. And the dreams are, are it's so weird. It, they're, they're, they're your body using your personal experience to make up something that you've never experienced before and you can't understand. Mm. So I was, you know, I was being physically, I was paralyzed, but being physically moved every 18 hours by nine people who'd lift my body up and roll me around. And I, I didn't know what that was. So I was having dreams about, I'd been kidnapped by the extremely hot daughter of the Turkish president, who was keeping me narcotized with those little pods you put in the dishwasher, the blue mm. stuff that was going into my arms. And that felt great. I really liked that bit. Uh, the, the being thrown around by the, the muscular guys, that wasn't so hot. Uh, but the whole no, it was very weird. And people sort of, my, my past or my imagination were in and out of it all. I came out of it and wrote, there's got to be 35,000 words just straight off while I was still semi-delusional. Um, right. It's just deranged, deranged stuff. One day I'll go back to it. But <laughs> And you suffered a pulmonary embolism from what I read as well. Yeah, I, pulmonary embolism, uh, renal failure, toxic shock. Um, there's a list about as long of your, as, of your arm as different bits that went on within it. But all of it, I was unconscious, and my wife and daughter couldn't weren't allowed to see me. Obviously, couldn't come into the hospital. The last time they'd seen me, I'd been sitting on the sofa, and it was a month later they they met me in the hospital in a wheelchair. So yeah, it was. Uh, and they, I think they had three occasions when the hospital called and sort of waved an iPad in front of me, and they said say goodbye to him. Um, but it was you know, and I didn't know anything about it when I came round. By the time I was sane again, it was all lovely. Everybody was charming, and you know, I didn't know what was going on so it's weird um i'd like to say it's i changed my attitude to life but i didn't have much tolerance for bollocks beforehand i've got even less tolerance for bollocks <laughs> afterwards i was always fairly sort of uh i really want an easy life and to enjoy it as much as possible and i've come out firmly convinced that i want an easy life and i want to enjoy it as much as possible <laughs> reinforce the same stuff <laughs> Why don't we go back to the beginning? Because I saw in The Guardian you just wrote an interesting memory of a, a photographer who was photographing Anthony Bourdain. And you also wrote an obituary on Bourdain, which I read. You mm. were chatting about this privately. But as I was researching this relationship you've had with Bourdain, you mentioned meeting him once. You did mm. write a tweet two days after his death where you said, I wrote this for Anthony Bourdain. I wrote it like this because of him. In fact, that I'm writing it all is because of him. Yeah, I, so I, I, I haven't been a writer forever. I, I sort of trained as a photographer. Um, and I was a photographer and filmmaker for years. And I went into advertising uh, and did sort of a decade of that. But I wasn't a copywriter. That wasn't, that wasn't the deal. Um, and I'd always sort of been very, uh, very verbal, uh, sort of performancey, that that kind of thing. But I'd never really thought about writing. Um, and the Bourdain book kind of came out at around that time, and it, it gelled so much with what my own experience of being a cook years before had been. 
and it was like I, it was I was really drawn into that notion, which he, which now I, I I I question whether it's completely authentic. But he 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 represented something that I wanted to believe so badly about myself of that period, mm. and part of it was the kind of that 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 positioning he has of of yeah, and I just I just wrote down what I was, how I was, that thing. And so many people believe he, he was a kind of a, <laughs> he was just a chef. He wasn't, he was clearly a phenomenal writer and an excellent communicator way before he picked up a knife or a needle. So, you know, that, and I, I think I was seduced by that. I think for me writing about food, I came into it very much from a world whereby it was all middle-class women writing for middle-class women. Huh. It was all, of, in England, food writing was all about um entertaining and uh, let's 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 cook a meal for the boss and that kind of thing and his muscularity his physicality his thing of you know he was taking it like hunter thompson my other my other great pinup you know yeah. i remember i think i just when i read that book i just read hell's angels which i'd previously read at school it had been it was a set text in sociology for a branch of sociology called phenomenology or something and it was thought to be very academically weird but you know these people were actually going to immerse themselves almost like margaret mead with tribes people only only with people in our own subcultures and i read this book and it absolutely blew me away it's and then that led me to new journalism and then i sort of it parked and it i thought christ i wish i could write the idea of being a writer is so sexy but i'll just get on with my job and that was fine and then Bourdain just came in and, and and did that. And at the time, I was trying to find a way to to learn to write. And nobody teaches it in the UK. We don't have writing. Create, we have creative writing, but it's like, you know, it's poetry and, and stuff like that. And journalism, they kind of don't teach it. I, I started doing screenwriting courses because it was the only thing where they actually had a system. You know, and people could communicate something and, and try and pass something on. I did comedy writing for a while. That was fun. And then suddenly I thought, God, this guy writes about food. And I could do that because I know about food too, because I'm a greedy git. And because I've spent the last two decades on expenses in an advertising agency going to expensive restaurants. <laughs> yeah, I can do this shit. This is great. And and was because of that. And then I think as as he as he grew and as I grew, I think I was starting to see celebrity chefs in the UK going really to the bad. I mean, they they became capering sort of monkey characters <clears throat> and the way i saw it he kind of took his money from what seemed to be the the great good luck of getting that one bestseller and i remember i've been watching a thing called manhattan cable late at night on tv in the uk you guys had cable tv we didn't and so there was a guy who i think he was part of the same production company uh, I've forgotten the name of them now, World of Wonder Productions, they were called. And they were collecting what was on Manhattan Cable and running it late at night on English terrestrial TV. Mm. And we'd stay up late and we'd watch this. And Jesus, these people are absolutely mad. And is that Andy Warhol in the corner? And who is Maria Prakatan? And what is this stuff? And, and I watched it. And then he kind of came into that because that for me was visual gonzo. And then he the first series he did he'd basically taken a, a two camera setup and i'd done film and i'd done tv production you know i've been working for tv companies and i was looking at this stuff thinking jesus this guy's just gone out with with eng kit he's taken news gathering equipment and he has gone out and look he's he's ripped to the eyeballs on something while he's doing this this is what i want to do this is so cool and he would bought the right to do that 
And then it seemed that the channels and the food world and everything else kind of caught up with him. And said, actually, yeah, we want a piece of this. And he turned them down. He kept turning it down. And that was, he just, he kept playing like bat after bat after bat. Great, great moves. And that was kind of, that was what I meant when I said that. And I think I, I felt empowered to write it in his style. I mean, The Guardians, are, it's a lovely left-wing, very uh, decent-thinking paper, uh, and it has a certain sort of intellectual level to it. But they were somehow letting me write in that, it seemed appropriate to write in that kind of gonzo way about that guy. Right. So he, if I felt he changed the world so I could write into it that way as well. Interesting. It was an acceptable form of journalism. Well, so you were you were a line cook for ten years as well. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, which was, you know, fine. <laughs> <laughs> how how accurate though did you find Bourdain? Because one of the things we were talking about before is it is really interesting the kind of curation of details that Bourdain mm. presented. Um, when there really wasn't a template for this to become what it became. I mean, Orwell obviously did Down and Out in London and Paris, um, and it seemed like, while well, Hunter S. Thompson seems to get all the credit for new journalism, it was done decades before. Of course, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but, but it's not just... This is the thing that's been bugging me over the last, the last couple of years now, thinking about this. It's not just the fact that you're writing about it. It's the fact that you are kind of you'd have to excuse me for sounding very english about this but you're de facto middle class mm -hmm. and you're working inside a de facto working class environment right. and there's not many times that happens in literary history mm -hmm. there's not many times it happens in social history because why would you i mean i did it because i found line cooking so exciting i found it interesting and i found i was kind of a like a camp skinny little kid and I wasn't in a band and I wasn't in a team and I wasn't in the military. And the first time I went in, I thought, Jesus, this is great. I loved that. I fell in love with it. But I was always, you know, I was always going to be out of it because, you know, I was going to get a, a, an education and move on and move up, move, move up and move out. I actually did it for longer because I moved to the States. Um, you know, I fell in love with a waitress, went over there. And, and then it was the only work I could get largely illegally without having to get married. So I worked in diners and schools I was in a prison once. That was fun. You know, just, just, you know, just permanent, just line cooking. That was it. Um, and it was great. And I had no pretensions to be a chef. It was just, it was the, it was the gig I did. It was like a guy, you know, who's a bit better built than me saying, yeah, I worked my way through college in construction. Okay. Right. That's, that's fine. You know, where I was a ski instructor because I grew up like that and I could ski. So it was just, it was a kind of, it was that kind of, I grew up in a seaside town. So all the time from a young teenager, right the way up through, I was always, catering jobs were where it was there, they, there was plenty of that sort of work i just didn't have the i didn't have the, the the personality to be front of house so yeah but but he it's coming out now sort of slowly but surely more and more people are realizing you know a very very privileged and strangely bohemian and international upbringing by American standards of the period. I mean, this wasn't just an American posh kid. This was a non-jock, uh, Ivy League, uh, French dad kind of liberal mother. That's, that's kind of weird. Well, closet, really weird. Closeted Jewish mother also, which yes. is quite interesting. Bourdain didn't yeah. know she was Jewish until I yeah. think 17. Mm -hmm. So there's a, there's a whole bunch going on. And so when he writes that stuff, and the reason it really gelled for me so much is... I think I thought 
even from the very beginning, that he was doing what I did, which was constantly reinventing that past mm. through the eye of making it glorious. Mm. You know, you've, it's, it's, it's what you do. You, you, and, and this is a kind of an English class system thing, but you're, you know, the, the cool kids are, are, are you know, lower and working classes and you want a piece of that and you try and adapt your life to sound like it or be involved in it. Christ, I mean, Mick Jagger spent half his life trying to sound like an East Ender and he bloody wasn't. I mean, <laughs> why is that? That's a really big drive for creative middle class kids. So there was that in there, um, although it didn't really have a shape. I like that idea, though, of creative. When I first moved to New York, I found it fascinating. Anybody who lived upstairs, which were almost all white or Jewish, mm. everybody who worked downstairs, uh, all the doormen, all the helpers, yeah. Yeah. all the drivers, um, the babysitters mm -hmm. were all people of color. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But the doormans, when I would go out for a cigarette, would, would every time you'd see a white person pass them and say, hola, like speaking yeah. very... <laughs> Very overtly, sort of, we're the same, bro. Yeah. Uh -huh. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd see the doormen cringe, but then you'd see the doormen try to straighten their lapel and do yeah. the things to fit in with the upper class. And sort of this code switching on both sides of the equation was fascinating. The code switching is, uh, who is it who wrote, uh, um, it's not Goffman. Oh God, I forgot the name of the academic who came up with code switching. And it, it's, it's, a, it's a absolutely brilliant because you see it. And obviously, it's it's exactly what we do here. I was born in the West Country, so I have a I have a farmer's accent, uh, a bit like sounding maybe Tennessee to you. And then I moved when I was quite young to Oxford, which is like Boston. And so right. I was I was I had it beaten into me, out of me, into me, out of me. I lived in the states for years. I you know, worked for a large Australian company, and I code switch constantly depending on who I'm with whether I'm drunk or not, how happy or relaxed or easy I am. It's constant. If you're in an, in an urban environment, it's always there. People always joke that whenever you're, you're, uh, you're on the phone to a tradesperson, you know, obviously I've run a couple of restaurants. So I'm, you know, invariably I'm on the phone to a plumber or a, you know, some guy's going to come around and de declog the drains or something like that. And my voice drops to me. Oh, I'm doing it's, it's utter bollocks. <laughs> Well, this is very common. I mean, I mean, yeah. George Orwell, I remember reading that he's regularly on the BBC. There's no recording of his voice that exists, but it was a major feature of producers at the BBC that he kept code switching while he yes. was talking. He was very embarrassed about his Eton education and how it infiltrated yeah. his accent. He wanted to be the common man, but it was a bit of kind of going native for, for him that, I, you know, a lot of what he was doing, I don't know that you could do today without enormous critical backlash. Exactly. And I, I think it also, if your young upbringing and your early politics were to the left, then you also get even more embarrassment. <laughs> and the code switching is faster and harder and you're better at it. But, you know, then it tends to leak out into your clothing and your, you know, your, where you live and how your kids are educated. I mean, it's 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 a it's an absolute mess. But to, I don't know. There was, I, I remember the first people who who I talked to about uh, Bourdain's first book, I think, were they, they were they were really they were very often very jockey chefs. You know, they were big, like manly, muscly guys, and they they bought into it on absolutely one single level, and it was a great level to be on. 
and I, and I think I think it's it's very similar to a lot of the of the positions of uh, sort of rock and roll musicians. You know, you can you really can take it on that kind of meathead level, and it's very good at being meathead level. And then you actually think about you know the the people who are doing it and why they're doing it and how cleverly they just did that, and you think actually you're not you're not entirely <laughs> you're not of that type are you that's not that's not you there's something else going on there and and i know we've mentioned before the different kinds of positionings that it's a construct take. it's a it's, it's a construct I mean, but i think yeah pe people have very glibly said you know uh, bourdain was the man who made food into rock and roll mm -hmm. actually i think there's something really interesting about perhaps because of his background, perhaps unconsciously, perhaps because he loved music, perhaps because he'd grown up in a family who were involved in the business of you know, music and, and celebrity and stardom. He actually did the thing of, of understanding what it is to be a performer in a way that most other chefs who've had celebrity thrust on them don't have. He created a persona. He absolutely created a persona. I'm, 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 I'm exhausted by the number of people who talk about Joe Strummer in his presence. Right. And I think, you know, this guy's my age. You know, he grew up with that poster on his bedroom wall. You know, he's got the shape to have that walk. He knows what he's doing. <laughs> it's not like, Joe Strummer, God, who's that? No, <laughs> he right. never said that. He knew that guy the same time I did, same time you did. And that's part of the way he is. Arguably, I'm in a similar position, which is, you know, someone, somebody says, God, that was a great thing. That was good. You sound just like Tony Bourdain. Okay. Like I didn't, that wasn't crossing my mind from the very first time I hit a keyboard. You know, there's, so there, there's always the, 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 the cross influences all the way through. But it is interesting how you can't shuck that kind of stuff because like, like, I mean, Bourdain's mother hiding this Jewish identity because mm. of anti-Semitism and mm -hmm. growing up in the, I, th I think the South Bronx is where she was from. Yeah. Um, I was so aware early on with Tony, who I couldn't stand. I couldn't stand what the theater of the presentation was. Mm. I, yeah. I liked this book. I mean, I thought it was very engaging. Yeah. Mm. And you brought up earlier Hunter S. Thompson, but it seems like there's very much two different kinds of Hunter S. Thompson, um, people who celebrate him. Yeah. The Hell's Angels is very different from what it became. Yeah. Oh, completely. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. like yeah. him wanting to hang out with rock stars and that kind of thing. Uh, to me, that was totally to the detriment of the artist he was and the yes. journalist he was. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I, with, with Hell's Angels, there's, he is genuinely on the cutting edge of what was happening in sports writing, what was happening in war journalism. And he thought, there's a thing about subcultures going on here. I'm going to do it. And I think it was a very pure thought. You know, I, if, if, I could, if I could be in Vietnam right now in, in, a, in a foxhole somewhere and being shot at and talking to this kid, then I can go out with these social groups. It was in San Francisco. He's, he's right in the heart of where all of those youth cultures start to really burst and burgeon. Of course he's going to do that. He's the Margaret Mead of the, you know, of the acid generation. And, and then he suddenly also realized he became the same kind of monster as many of the musicians did. Right, right. That kind of uncalibrated, self-interested, constantly on the edge of believing your own lie right. and, and, and that's where it really starts to, to melt down at the end right well and i think also i mean i remember this one observation he had in particular with as a as a the genesis of hell's angels was to say the hell's angels are not an aberration from american society they are a direct byproduct from american yes. society
And when I read some of those descriptions of him trying to deconstruct what this represents, you come really close to where Trump voters are in terms of celebrating a disruptor of the system, yeah. um, that there's no place for these people, that they're looked mm -hmm. down upon, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like yeah. he's there 50 years earlier. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Speaking about the same kind of dynamics and the same mm -hmm. ethos that I think yeah. permeated that shocking backlash to the liberal elite with Trump's, Trump's election. There, there, there is a, there's an enormous piece of work to be done on on what Trump actually did and how close he came to those previous. I hate the word disruptor, but but because it, it, I was in advertising when it was invented, <laughs> and it, it is a terrible it's a terrible ad man term. And yeah. I, I got I got a I got a press release last week uh, from uh, somebody offering me an interview with the much talked about disruptor in the area of vegetable based cat food. <laughs> and I thought, you know, if you are a vegan cat food disruptor, man, this has really, this has really scraped the bottom. <laughs> my, my cats would not wish to subscribe to that newsletter. Precisely. <laughs> oh God, yes. <laughs> well, and so, so with Bourdain, as you say, I mean, it's interesting what you're saying too, because I. I I can't escape exactly what you're describing. I mean, I thought about this often. I was a horrible student in high school and my dad was valedictorian school president and couldn't make writing happen. Um, once some professor said, this is what you're meant to do, it terrified mm. you. And mm. so he's like, well, I don't know what to do. I need to call my own bullshit and I'll just go to law school because I can't just coast mm. through this. Well, he did coast through this. It was mm. It didn't call him on his bullshit. But the fact that as I am failing at everything that your dad is a lawyer made mm. people look at you differently than if my dad was a janitor. Oh, and, it God, made, yes. and it made me look at my possibilities different than if my dad was a janitor. Is mm. you kind of think I can be fucking everything up, but maybe it's because there's a, a bigger goal out there than just going to university and following some traditional path to inherit his law firm and that sort of thing. Mm. And I think with Bourdain too, it's quite interesting that the image that was perpetuated was I'm on the Lower East Side. I'm a drug addict. I always aspired to be a drug addict. I'm reading William Burroughs. This was a natural destination, but it's not really true at all. Like, I mean, his dad's an executive at a major yeah. record label for Columbia Records for classical music. His mom's at the New York Times. Um, if you read the new oral history, anytime somebody in the family dies, it seems to drop a quarter of a million dollars on his head while mm. he's telling us, I couldn't pay the rent, I couldn't yeah. pay my mm -hmm. Amex card. Yeah. And it's I'm always fascinated by how people curate the details of this narrative. And again, it's luck, luck, luck. We hear it all across journalism. No journalist ever aspired to be a journalist. No politician ever aspired to be a politician. <laughs> all <laughs> businessmen were self-starters and did it yeah, because right. they were perceptive but didn't have an No, that we, I think we all we all reinvent massively. But there's this this expression that, that, that does the rounds a lot in identity politics at the moment about about recognizing privilege is a is it is very germane in cases like this because if you think about people who and and i very much did this particularly at art college um and in the years later going into advertising in the years when it was still very drug fueled right um i think i think the people who are alive today to talk about experimenting with oblivion were able to do it because it wasn't really 
the deep, dark, bleak, black way out because there's always a way back up. There was right. always something at the other end of the line. You know, your mum and dad were going to pick up the rent, even though you did. And Bourdain talks about selling all this stuff to pay for drugs. And I remember him saying, you had to have a, 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 a quilt cover and he put it on the street outside and he sold his records and his and his flatmate stuff as well. And I, yeah, 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 that's fine. I bet you did. You were probably there and... I know because I tell stories like that, and probably ninety-four percent of it is good, uh, uh, is true, and and the other bits are kind of kind of there's none of it is one hundred percent a lie, but there's lots. You know, you you you, just, you take your extra four or five percent there, and you weave it through, and you make it a better story because that's what we do. But also, we don't then run out of the money for the decent quality heroin and then have to go onto the bad stuff and then go into a really bad methadone program and then that gets cancelled because it gets cancelled and then you know you get into a fight with somebody and you break a leg but you can't afford the meds all of that stuff gets kind of elided and it's almost it doesn't matter whether anybody ever ever gave him a check you can experiment with oblivion when you know that there are people on the other side who will still love you and will still bail you out i mean god my dad i've had to get my dad to bail me out it almost wouldn't have been worth it i mean he would have made it so unpleasant so uncomfortable because he thought that was what he had to do but he would have done it right. <laughs> and in absolute extremes i would i could have i would have, i could have written that i could have, i've sold everything because i you know, i know my dad's got a few bob but I, I can't go to him i can't go to him yeah i can't come on <laughs> you know, he's gonna get me out of hospital and and it's always Thompson was the same way. Thompson had money to fall back on. You know, he was able to go out and do those things. And there probably were kids. There probably were kids who didn't have that background and felt the same thrill and delight of dancing on the edge of oblivion, you know, getting yourself into that. And it, it always was, it was always a search for getting to a point where you literally are completely out of control. You've you've absolutely there's nothing to hold on to. There's no gripping. There's no you're spiraling down a dark, dark, mysterious black place. There's no coming back from. You've really pushed it out there, and then you come back. I I was in therapy for a while and, and uh, it's great fun. Uh, <laughs> nice bloke. Uh, he became a Buddhist priest in the end, so that was kind of weird. Um, but he had this thing about. He believed that a lot of the people that he was dealing with who were dealing with uh, taking a lot of drugs and seeking that sort of outer edge where you really are completely shot away rather than functional. You know, it's keeping you up or, you know, you're having more sex or it's making you know, that rather than people are really going for the darkness. He said, actually, they're the worst control freaks of a lot. Mm. He said, you say you want to be out of control, but listening to you talking about, you know, so I took a bit of that and then I got a couple of those because that will bring me back from there and then a couple of those to even me out to the following day and a bit more of this. And you said, what kind of control freak is that? You know, you're, you're talking like an anaesthetist, keeping somebody on the edge of death so they can be operated on. Right. That's, that's exactly how you are handling your narcotics. That's control freaky. That's not actually what you think it is, which is letting loose, being free, being crazy, letting it all go mad. Well, it's and. You reminded me of something that Andy Warhol once said that I thought was such an astute observation about, I don't know if it's human nature, but but this kind of delineation we're talking about where he said with the factory, because those people were out of control, were constantly dying of drug overdoses, mm -hmm. um, suicide. And he said, the people for me are the people that fail at casting couches all over town. Mm -hmm. They they own, Their first take is better than anybody's. 
but they don't have a second take. They're far too talented to lead ordinary lives, but they're far too unsure of themselves to ever become professionals. Yes. And when you hear this kind of diagnosis, I think so astute, Bourdain was a consummate pr professional, the son of two consummate professionals, who yeah. had grown mm -hmm. up with, you know, his mom getting him a job at, at or sorry, getting him into school at CIA. Mm -hmm. um, I think his dad helped him get into Vassar. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there is such a born on third base element to this all over the place where real people who grew up with the kind of background he's trying to sell you on. Um, if there's one one sick person in that family, they're fucked. Yeah. <laughs> you That's know, it. broke means broke. Yeah. <laughs> Qualified That's it. We're talking. That's precisely about. it. Yeah. And, and I mean, you mentioned I mean, you mentioned this curation of background details. I can't help but think of even Hemingway at 18 years old. Um, got a photograph after the First World War of him in an Italian soldier's uniform. Yeah. <laughs> so for history that early. That early, yeah. yeah. Saying, I was not an ambulance driver. Nothing yeah. wrong with that. I was a soldier. I wasn't handing out chocolate and cigarettes no, on no. the lines. I was fighting with the Italian. I was the first American wounded on the Italian front. It's, it's but, fascinating. But this, this... Curating is the mass massively overused word, but the the management of your juvenilia is yeah, interesting. Stage manager, yeah, yeah. I, I, there's a there's a book I was I can think I can see it on the shelf here somewhere. Uh, Penguin did a paperback of Evelyn Waugh's early essays and writing, huh. and some of it was when he was at university, and it's almost competent. And then some of it is when he's in his final years at high school. Well, in England, the public school. And uh, it's appalling. I mean, it's just appalling. Huh. And you and it cha it changes your attitude to I mean, you. You were a nasty little prig. You were an appalling little racist, fascist. You were, you were frightened all the time and bullied. And you, you were nasty in your responses. And you took that into later life. And in spite of your brilliance, you are diminished by the fact that I've read your juvenilia. And I look at it and I, I try not to look at it. I, I, I'm never getting that book out of the shelf again because I want to try and keep, oh God, he was so magnificent at the time. And some people just don't survive their juvenilia. And then you start thinking about people like, you know, DBC Pierre. And, you know, and you think, Jesus, you know, this guy is magnificent. He's glorious. If he was a dick just once in his teenage years, that starts to fall apart. But he's watertight, isn't he? The guy's perfect. There's nothing. There's nothing to be found. The the juvenilia has been curated, and it's an and it's an extension. I, we were chatting online a while back, and I made a joke about this is Cambridge, and this is Freshers' Week, uh, and Freshers' Week is when everybody's family is a little bit working class, actually, because you know it doesn't matter where you come from. When you're introducing yourself to the, you know, for the first time to the rest of your, yeah, yo, my family are basically working class. Yeah, yeah, because we no, they're not. They're bloody not. They haven't been for four generations, and none of them ever went down mines. But that doesn't matter because that's the positioning you have. And actually, there's a there's a continuum between the little lie and the attendant self belief that goes with it, and the complete comprehensive Stalinist revisionism of your whole life at some point in your second year of potential uh, uh, success as a writer. <laughs> I'm going back now, I'm going through the lot and I'm burning shit. I do wonder about 
there are comparatively few old school literary agents left. Um, and I was yeah. lucky at, a, at an early point um, to meet a, a young guy who wanted to uh, to be um, he wanted to do work with food writers. Uh, and he and I got on really well. We were no longer together, but he had actually he'd run. He, he joined the agency that had done uh, Graham Greene um, and D.H. Lawrence uh, and uh, even more, I think, was part of you know, and so and he was he was really old school. But I, he used to tell incredible stories about the way that they used to just no. I I, I say, old oh, chap, you really shouldn't mention that. Don't don't talk about that anymore. You know, oh, or I won't ever mention that I went to you know, that sort of school, or I you know, I, I was nasty to that girl when I was in my son my second year at university. No, that that's it. And I do suspect that that they part of what they did and is no longer done. And arguably can never be done in a digital world. I'm not going to be able to get rid of ever of stuff I wrote when my when I wasn't as good a writer as I might end up being. That right. shit's going to be there forever. I'm stuffed. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Because you're right. There is. I was aware of that when I was writing in Cuba. It's like, well, there's no real journalists here covering it because the Americans can't really come in, or, or extraordinarily few. Um, where else in the world is that true? Where you know a place that people are fascinated by, but sort of it's forbidden. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a very uncommon dynamic, and I'm trying to think. Uh, I remember, I remember a, a director, I think Harmony Kareem, who did a film when I was a teenager mm -hmm. that really caught my attention. Kids mentioned yeah. that one of the problems with making movies today is you can never make a movie where anybody gets lost. They can't get yeah. lost anymore. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and it's yeah. funny. Like, Throughout human history, that's one of the great nightmares we have. Is yes, just yes, yes, yes. Where we are. And uh, you were mentioning DBC Pierre. He did, a, uh, I think, one story in a collection of horror stories where the horror was a plane going down and there's no signal on your phone. And mm. he said, a modern horror story for most people is just not <laughs> a signal. <laughs> I, this stuff fascinates me. I, I, I love uh, detective fiction of, a, of the between the wars years, that kind of stuff. I just I absolutely love it. And of course, none of it would survive the mobile phone it's just it's just not possible it ends but, the story <laughs> but, but this this conceptual stuff i was my daughter was i guess she must have been sort of four or five years old i remember having a chat with her science teacher and uh she said a weird thing happened the other day i looked at my watch and i said uh oh my watch is slow and the kids didn't understand what i meant and <laughs> so she sort of probed into this she thought she thought i'd find it interesting and she was right she said, of course, for these kids, time is an absolute, which can be accessed from any one of a dozen appliances. But I'm looking at, I've got three screens here at the moment. I've got the time is available to me in those three places. If I took my phone out, it would be somewhere else. The idea that it could be borrowed and set into a device that maintains it efficiently or inefficiently. And therefore, I don't even know how to describe what that thing is that's then the interface between me and the fake time that I'm keeping. Time keeping. I keep time on my watch in my in my on my wrist. I still, by the way, wear an analog watch because I kind of like that feeling. Right, but it's strange right. because, you know, that generation will never understand fast and slow watches. That can't be in a plot. It can't have any logic. <laughs> well, let me ask you, because I, I was just watching yesterday. Uh, I was just having one of those bad days. So I need my good escapism sometimes is, a, is an old spy novel or old, old yeah, spy yeah. film. Oh, God, I was yeah. watching A Day of the Jackal and I was thinking, it's just a procedural. It's a lovely procedural yeah. on both sides of the equation. 
But how on earth? It's such a wonderful template that I don't know that anybody's recreated again. Like, here's a real assassination attempt on a president. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we detail that beautifully, as if it's cinema verite. It feels like mm. you're just there and somebody's filming a documentary. But the even closer successful assassination attempt is the one I'll make up, and here we go. Yeah. Oh, no, it, it, I mean, it's one of my favorite films. Absolutely. Huh. Uh, just got, apart from Delphine Seyrig being in it, which is just, <laughs> just yeah. so perfect. Uh, who later crops up uh, in her underwear in a Woody Allen movie, uh, in uh, Love and Death, which is a really weird, like, you know, loop around. Um, no, I, I love it. I, I think Forsyth is, is a terrific uh, writer of, of a good yarn. Uh, and yeah. probably at the peak of it being there, alongside Len Dayton, whose writing I also think is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, uh, mm. Obviously, uh, Cornwell as well. But, but I mean, these these are these are these are the other one he did, which is very good, is called uh, "The Eagle Has Landed," huh. which is about an attempt to assassinate Churchill, which actually took place, in which a bunch of German uh, SS paratroopers land at a small Norfolk village, take the village over whilst disguised as Americans. And then are they going to hit Churchill, who is down there for a conference? And it's it's got Michael Caine in it in the lead role, playing a German. Uh, oh. And it's just brilliant because it's also, it's brave enough to make the Germans human, which was rare for filmmaking of that time. Um, and again, it's kind of, he danced around reality in a, in a, in a, in a, really, in a really clever way. I, I, I completely love that film. I'm so glad you did. Did you ever see the remake? I did. It was horrible. I, it was I just, didn't. it was so uh, Bruce Willis, wasn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. It had none of the magic. I mean, no. the other thing, part of the reason why I raised it was because it reminded me of like when my dad opened, opened his child protection law firm in 1978, a year before I was born. There's, I mean, you've got a phone. That's it for technology. Yeah. 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 Uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> he, and he's one of the, First lawyers in Canada that get a computer. I think it was thirteen thousand dollars of nineteen seventy nine money to get a, a computer that had thirty two k memory for oh, the God. whole thing. And, and you know, just the idea that you have no ability to photocopy anything. Everything is a triplicate document and stuff. And you see that in, in Dave the Jackal. Let's find out where he's going across the border or in hotels, and it's all pieces of paper. It's yeah, just yeah. man hours with paper. But I, I actually, having read your your uh, uh, amazing piece uh, recently, I um I managed to track down a copy of the the 2004 print of um of the Passenger, ah. which I've watched this morning actually weirdly in preparation for this, and by far the most tenuous piece of plot hinging in cinema history <laughs> is the ability to cut the to, to cut the photograph out of the passport. Yeah. And I'm saying that, I mean, I don't know, I, I, I don't know how much time you spent in the art room at school, but that guy was peeling off a picture that was glued on with cow gum and he was sticking it back on with library paste, man. That does not happen. That you cannot happen. do that and expect that to work. But swapping them over. Yeah. And then the whole film hinges on that, that absurd yeah. piece of, of wonderful nonsense. Unlike the jackal, where the verisimilitude, I mean, it became known as the jackal technique. The jackal just technique, yeah. And it was still going. I think they shut the window on that. I've, um, weirdly, I tried to do it for a, a, oh. a putative piece uh, about 10 years ago. 
I wanted to actually set up a separate identity for reviewing restaurants. Um, and uh, I, I, I actually I actually had a mate who was a who's a copper. Uh, and I started doing it. And then one day I thought, I'd better check in. And I said, like, if somebody wanted, you know, do you remember that movie? He said, listen, we've, we've shut that window down. It's never going to happen again. But it was going until until about a decade ago. Yeah. Isn't and um, yeah, absolutely. Okay. But then, you know, e even today, we can't get all of our records onto. No, nobody's got the money to digitize old shit that will never be used again. Yeah. So there were a million kids who died in the first, second or third year of their birth. And nobody's going to go back and find all those paper records and put them into digital format because it makes sense. All they do is they wait until it kind of peters out. Right. So actually, I would have to find somebody who died in childbirth in 1963 to replace me. Actually, there weren't that many by that point. A lot of them were surviving, so there weren't that many small ones, small ones in childbirth. And then, and there are less of us who are interested in doing it that we do it another way. So that route kind of just dies out of its own, its own old age. But no, it's it's a the the other thing. I, I think I've, I've always been fascinated by the by the the rifle, and the idea of there being people who you know, in the in the years post-war, there would have been a gunsmith somewhere in Lausanne who would be making hunting rifles and so on. But then it becomes so much a, a sort of Hitchcockian MacGuffin that right. it's there. And but that was, I think, was me for me the ultimate betrayal in the in the um the 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 second making of the movie. Because when Bruce Willis sort of backs up his SUV, opens the back door, and there's a giant cannon. From a from a sort of phantom jet or something, no which is actually going to do the assassination with. It's just bonkers. Although that, I think, strangely, is lifted from a an Elmore Leonard story. There's a story about some guys who it's a it's a fantastic little heist story about a mismatched gang of five guys who managed to get one of those rotating cannon things, like the the sort of things they used to put on gunships. Yeah, Gatling gun. They managed to get one of those and put it in the back of a of a of a VW microbus and use it to blow the doors out of a of a, a bank. It, it's a lovely, it's a lovely. <laughs> you and I obviously like the same kind of nonsense. This is brilliant. <laughs> but I, I think that I think that those were the two revelatory details that were included in the book that really launched it in a weird way. Is here's how to f create a fake identity. That absolutely, it's a how-to guide to do it. I think I think toward the end for Forsyth, he actually would find out how to do a lot of the things that were in the book and then create a kink one little item so the chain link yeah. would be broken so you couldn't Very actually much. do it uh -huh. because the first time he did it um it actually works and worked for decades and the other was just what you're describing he he interviewed like a real gunsmith guy yes. like a yes. subterranean gunsmith about exactly how to buy a weapon that you could smuggle across and stuff so, it inside a crutch. When I, when I first started doing uh, radio work, um, I had a very good producer. And he said, look, it's just, it's just a matter of interest. You know, have you got any real passion projects? Is there anybody you'd really like to talk to, really like to interview? And we can you know, work towards that. And I said, you know, I would really like to meet Len Dayton. Because you know he'd written the It Press file, but he'd also had been he'd written some amazing cookbooks, and he'd before he before It Press, It Press made him as much money as Doctor No had made Ian Fleming, wow. so he was a, he was a massive millionaire overnight from wow. that book, which didn't take he was already at that point he was an advertising copywriter and illustrator, uh, and he was doing this job at the, the Observer where he was food editor, and so he did this thing and he and it was a, it's a great it's a great book and a great film, 
It's Michael Caine at his peak. And I said, I'd like to meet him and I'd like to interview him. And, they, and he said, well, you know, you know, he's obviously he's a recluse, you know, after he, he made his money. He, uh, he retired with his, his beautiful Danish model wife uh, to the Channel Islands, the tax haven, uh, and privately schooled his two sons uh, and bought a house in L.A. Uh, and he, he wrote other books. He actually bought the first uh, word processor in the U.K., which was an IBM that he had to have craned through the window of his flat in Chelsea. And literally, they had to take the window out in the front wall. And this thing is the size of two grand pianos. And has, uh, but he, he was a geek. He was a total geek. So anyway, long story short, a decade later, this guy phones me up out of nowhere and says, "Listen, Dayton will talk. Really? Uh, we, we've got two hours in the studio. Let's let's go do it." And Dayton came in. Apparently, he read one of my books and he liked my stuff about cooking more than anything else, and the fact that I credited him. He said some nice things on the cover of a couple of books of mine subsequently, which was just, I mean, honestly, unbelievable. He signed my original copy of the Ipcress, but. Wow. What I hadn't realized was when he was doing the spy stuff, he's he's wonderfully quietly spectrum. And I say that in in Cambridge, we have a higher tolerance for that kind of thing than anywhere else in the world. We have to. There are so many lovely, brilliant academic people who are differently wired. Sure. And part of his kind of recluseness is about that. He's not terribly socially adept, very quietly spoken, but he would immerse himself before writing each book that he wrote. He then wrote an amazing book called Bomber, which is a real-time story of one bombing mission over Germany. Then he wrote a book called Fighter, which is a real-time story of one Spitfire flight in and out. And these, and they make most the most amazing radio plays. The most, but he, each one of those things, because he was able to, because at an early stage in his life, he'd just been given so much money because of his writing skill. And he was understanding the new communication models that were inherent in advertising. He works in Madison Avenue for a while as well. And he started to think, oh, this is how people read. This is how people write. This is how films work. Okay, I can do this shit. Let's do, I'm going to write a funeral in Berlin. So what's the first thing he does? He buys himself one of these new 16 mil pocket cameras, not the 8 mil like the amateurs have got. This is like, you know, a small portable Bolex. And a, and a brand new Ewer recording device. And he goes out and he wanders around East Berlin with this shit. And then he takes it home and he's got a room. And he's got the actual documents. He bought some, you know, some fake passports from somebody in, in Tirania. He's, 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 he's got the, the specifications of the car and the manual. They're pinned on the walls. And he, he immersed himself in this stuff in this weird way. So when you then go back, Forsyth was writing exactly the same time. Right. And you know there's a room there with like fucking maps. <laughs> he's he's got stuff and it's, it's drilled down we don't really have that we don't do it that much anymore the, well i mean how many great procedurals are there there's not not a lot there's not a, there's not a lot we, we're having we're having an interesting thing uh, debate going on in the uk at the moment because uh they're saying that that there's a there's a real gender problem in uh in books because young men aren't writing books they're not getting their books published so the question immediately arises and this is all over our radio stations and our arts programs and things like that question immediately arises well of course the publishing industry is 90 percent young middle-class women so perhaps they're not buying the writings of the uh, the, the young gentleman and then, then they have some of those on to be interviewed and saying well, you know, we're not getting men approaching us with stories about you know emotion and you know interpersonal relationship and uh, and 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 that sort of spins around and you then have some, you know guys don't want to read that stuff right. but you know nobody surely wants a book about that kind of 
nerdery and slightly spectrumy bloke behavior where the, the the kind of car he was driving is actually important enough for the writer to have it pinned to the wall and it's kind of yeah you can see why i mean you know you see this the, the novel has become a predominantly female area it's interesting because become... you're, you're reminding me of like normal people just you know you just graduate from what university in dublin guess what i want to write about the relationship i had in high school and how it carried over yeah, yeah. 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 Well, wouldn't that be about ninety-five percent of people graduate? Yeah. Precisely that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, so it becomes immensely referential. Whereas, and and there are enormous flaws in the kind of the post-war. And I'm not talking about the sort of the great American writers who wrote about their uh, upper middle class, largely Manhattan-based, very often Jewish backgrounds. You know, they were that was the media that the great lions of supposed post-war literature were in. But but more that kind of, isn't it intriguing, those areas of detective, procedural, murder, thriller, politics writing and those kind of things. Yeah. I mean, even watching The Passenger this morning and I'm looking at his watch. I think that he's got that. That's a Rolex data just that's, you know, it's just and it's just to me, that kind of detail puts a free soul through me that puts everything in its place. The type of record, tape recorder he's using those those details, those devices. It's not that. Nobody would bot would anybody bother to do the research? Is it completely irrelevant? Is it wrong of me to like those things? I I, I don't know. I kind of don't know. Well, well, tell me about the passenger too, because I mean you mentioned that watch, and and the next thing you have to do, of course, is watch it with the Nicholson commentary. Which is what I'm doing tomorrow. Yes. <laughs> I got that. You're gonna hear him specifically discuss that watch. Yeah. That was because he says Antonioni was totally obsessed with technology. Yeah. And, you know, so I wonder for you what it was like going through that film for the first time, because it's a very divisive film. Some people find it so static and empty and and kind of preposterous. But um, for other people, it's quite quite a powerful experience as well. Like it it really knocked me on my ass when I saw it. I I loved Laventura. So I'm I'm pretty much predisposed to watch fucking hours of sea and rocks if it will get me in there um i first saw blow up when i was studying photography at art college you know i I probably watched that with a hasselblad in my hand just cycling it quietly or the nikon because we used to be able to like you know the idea was you could change the roll of film with your eyes shut while still being shot at so i would have been watching the film with the camera in my hands it was that important I even had that haircut at the time and I was that skinny. <laughs> so uh, the answer, the Antonioni thing is I'm, I'm, I'm ready for it. What intrigued me was actually, it, partly I wanted to know, <laughs> I really wanted to know when Nicholson first met Hunter S. Thompson, because mm. the, the traveling journalist, his look and his entire shtick is entirely looks like Hunter. Thompson. And he's got that kind, he's got the walk, he's got the physicality to it. So there's an element of that. He might just have been the only journalist he knew at the time or something along those lines. Maybe that was the look. Maybe they all look, they all wore sandals with old chinos. The tying off the shirt around the waist, which is a female thing. You would never see a guy do that. How fascinating is that little weird tweak? But no, I, I, I thought it was, I thought it was glorious. Huh. I thought she was interesting. Because, oh, yeah, but she's also, what's the, what's that terrible, you're not supposed to use the term in film now, but it's a, it's a, some, 
that psychotic pixie dream girl. Have you yeah. heard this expression? You know, you know the one I mean. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. The, it's the chaos engine. It's the it's the Madonna character, and in, in you know, she's partly that. She's partly that thing. And God, even when I was doing film at college, you know, we were there with people were starting to notice why are all these movies by middle aged Italian and French directors all about some beautiful girl on the edge of womanhood burgeoning into her sexuality by discovering and being led by an older man who happens to be a movie director and look exactly like that. So there's, there's parts of her that I find to use the, the current parlance are, are problematic, although she's it's only the sort of the, the slightly wild child hitchhiker shtick actually her character is strong and yeah. interesting and there's even a kind of is she implicit at the end right which i find really quite quite interesting i think the london sequences are beautifully done uh ian hendry is is because of his history of other movies yes he's, he's so unrecognizable he's, yeah but he's he's always a nasty piece of work yeah, he's always the ex-commando, stab you in the neck, uh, mur you know, murderer type, and he's and he carries that off. You don't want him to find him yeah. for something that is. I don't know. Um, I mean, anything with any Gaudi in it has got to be good. Well, I mean, <laughs> contrasted with the brutalist architecture of of what is it, Brunswick Center? Brunswick is, Center, yes, so yes, that is that is nice. That I I I still I'm going to have to unpack why she was there on the bench. Well, I mean, my theory, my theory, I mean, that I put forward in the in the piece was, mm. um, you know, maybe she was Robertson's wife all along. That's that's at the end of it. It's all there's a point where he says the 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 the, the, the door guy at the hotel says Mrs. Robertson's in the room. You don't and need he to walks show in because yeah. it's already been shown by her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She get it. Yeah. Since passport. And ordinarily she'd be too young. Yeah. But this being the movie and of the period and her relationship with Nicholson, she's obviously not too young. She could easily be. Yeah. Has she led them to him? I it's it's good it's it's good enough. It's really good. I mean, you never really work out in blow up who's the no who's who. They're, it's weird. They're I never really thought about it that way, but they are they're kind of spy novels in their way. Mm. There is, there's definitely a kind of a, there are, there are spooks here. There's betrayal. There's, you know, it's not quite Tinker Taylor, Taylor, Taylor Soldier Spy, but, but it's getting close. It's, it's interesting. Cause I always thought the film also was a bit in dialogue with Vertigo. And then it's also in yeah. dialogue with Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> Another of my absolute favorites. Yeah. Uh, yeah Who be, you know, like would, yeah. <laughs> again and again and again, who are you? Who are you? Who are you? But that, that's, I mean, the, the obvious sort of slightly sophomoric of the thing is, 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 of course, these are all, this is the existentialist bit that's right. feeding back into Italian cinema, having come through French from American. Uh, so, yeah, I can, there is that. And and some of that, some of the, of the, the sort of declarative stuff, you know, what is it? People change, well, pe people disappear, yeah, every time they leave the room. Yeah. And you and you look at it and you go, yeah, that's it's a bit heavy handed, mate. You know, it's <laughs> just a bit. You could have you could have shown that and not said it. Right. Um, and that that would have been a more modern approach, perhaps. But then but no modern director would ever, ever address something as complicated as that. No, 
Absolutely oh, not. The whole thing, the way it breathes. I mean, it's a thing I find with age, it's a thing I like more and more in film where- Oh God, yes. The younger people, it's like, everything is too slow. It needs to go faster, 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 get to the point, get to the point. Antonioni's whole thing is, what is the point? And there's never yes. an answer to it, yeah. but it's mm -hmm. always asking that question 9,000 different ways. Yeah. Uh, and and you know, I wanted to come back to, you were mentioning like dream interview subjects, because I love your work when you're interviewing people. The Pierre interview is so interesting, um, as was, you know, the obituary on Bourdain. Who, who are some of the favorite people that you have interviewed? And who would be some of your favorite people now to talk with and provide a portrait of? God, that's an interesting thought. I, I, I interviewed uh, Ferran Adria huh. a couple of times, and he's he's truly interesting because there's a thing there whereby I think the Spanish have been phenomenal at weaponizing art and artists. I think it's a lot to do with the sort of Basque country and Catalan independence and things like that. But, you know, they did it with Dali. You know, they did it with Picasso was from there, wasn't he? It's, it's kind of, and they, they culturally buy into the notion of man, because it's always man as artist um, and genius. And when I interviewed Adria, I went out there for, I, got, I was given half an hour with him and it turned into two days. And then he left me in his studio. He said, would you like the studio for a few days? The Talia. And I said, oh, yeah, I'd love to. This would be great. And he said, OK, well, my people will look after you. You know, here's the desk. You take it. You work here. And he was he was in the process. He had already closed the restaurant two years ago. Hmm. He was in the process of setting up a fundacion, which would be a museum to his work and art. And he'd take me into this building. We'd wandered from the Ramblas where he's got his office off to one side to where the battalion, the studio is. And it's sort of three floors of this incredible old apartment building with, oh. and every floor is just filled with steel racking like a library. And he's going through and he's going, oh, here are my socks from when I was 12 years old. And, uh, here's a picture my mother had of a chicken. And, and it's, it's everything, the whole lot. Like he's the most important thing ever. And of course he's not. Right. I mean, in the end, you know, the guy's a hash slinger, but, but the, I, there's so much about, about celebrity and its use and its value and how much he wants to believe it, how much it's functional for his people. As we walked through the Ramblers, it was like walking through Harlem with Cassius, then Clay. You know, it was like, you know, people wanted to come and touch him. It was like the hem of the garment stuff. And I'm with him and like the rest of the entourage out the back, these guys. Bizarre. The first time I interviewed him was in a, a, a couple of years earlier in a London restaurant. And um, it, I was a, it was very early in my in that point in my career where I was using more. Uh, I'd started to use tape recorders when I was doing interviewing rather than trying to get it all in my head. And uh, I went in, I turned the thing on. I relied on it, having taken everything in. And uh, he started talking and he said. Uh, <laughs> And uh, then his, 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 his minder fixer translator comes in and says, uh, yeah, he said, he said, this is a bar, with a, a marble lined bar with a, a three story high ceiling in this hotel in central London. And I got to the end of it and there's an hour and a half of rumbling away in the background. 
And then there's this one line, this one line, and it's uh, Ferran. He says he's uh, like a man. He uh, he spreads the seed. Yes, he's a man standing alone in a field, spreading his seed. And then back to (laughs) (laughs) I wrote the piece, and it was great. And I just I have just got this image of Ferran in there, just knocking one out in a field somewhere <laughs> on a hillside maybe with one of those cut out bulls on the on the, the on the horizon you know and <laughs> what was really bizarre was later on when i went to I was interviewing him in barcelona i started talking through this guy who was still there this fixer translator guy and they, they and they do that 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 very macho very spanish thing of pitching their voices low i wonder i've always wondered when when you know what point does your father say to you my son you must not speak in the high voice anymore. Okay. And they start doing it. They push their voice down and down and down. But we've been chatting away for a while through this translator. And suddenly he said, uh, it's okay. I speak English. You oh. bastard. You utter bastard. <laughs> uh, it reminded me of that, that horrendous, I think this was the English version of Borat, where he's yeah. talking to a rider. A horse is like a man. It's like if a man is happy, is a horse is happy. It just on and on for yeah, twenty yeah. minutes about the comparison. Yeah, oh. I, well, there's a there's a tendency to be to be to try to be gnomic because it makes you sound wise, and sometimes it just gets surreal. Um, do you know you know Fergus Henderson, who's yeah, obviously yeah. a bit big pinup of of Bourdain's. I've interviewed him a few times. He's a he's a real sort of idol and pinup of mine. Uh, he got Parkinson's fairly young, um, and he had a piece of apparatus installed, which is a, uh, there's a sensor where the seizures happen. And then on the other side of the brain, there's a stimulating device. The two wires go to a, uh, device about the size of a cigarette packet in the wall of his chest and a, basically a radioactive battery. Wow. And when I first interviewed him first time around, his uh, twitching and seizures were so huge that he'd literally move sort of three feet to one side with the throw of his head and shoulders. And the second time I saw him, it was like a fairly coherent conversation. He goes back in two or three times a year to have his battery changed and the equipment adjusted. And towards the end of each cycle, you can see that he's deteriorating. Then he comes back and he's okay. He was given, when the gear was put in, he was given four years to live. He's lived, I think he's lived longer than anybody with active Alzheimer's anywhere in the world, uh, uh, Parkinson's anywhere in the world. He's, I mean, he's phenomenal how he's doing and he's still doing very, very well. But uh, back to the original point about he's, he was a, he trained as an architect originally, Hmm. but not by going to the kind of architecture school where they teach you how to do buildings. (laughs) He went to a place called the Architecture Association, which is a kind of a, a very, very, very intellectual kind of art college for art architecture. So what you might do is produce some drawings and spend six years creating something that could never be built because it's 14 stories high and made of rubber. But conceptually, it's phenomenal. And he's he's got that kind of genius brain. But I think I, I first couple of times I interviewed him when he was starting to be very, so he was more coherent. I remember thinking, you sound like a, a sort of Regency like you know, like William Hazlitt or, or or Pope or Addison or something like that, and I think part of the deal with the way the speech pattern works is you get that thing whereby 
when you're able to speak, you, you might not have much time to get it out. Consequently, you have thinking time in between the next thing I'm going to say is going to be fucking brilliant. And you, and you, you think, God, you've grown to use this thing. This is like a, a guy with a injured leg developing the limp and then walking through and is the rest of his body compensates and yeah. his he he's the most aphoristic individual in his, his delivery of stuff it honestly is it's pure distilled gem and I'm, I'm convinced it's part of the way that his mind delivers ideas to his to his mouth he's really interesting too i would love to do uh some radio interviews with him mm. but it's it's an incredible challenge and I've got a couple of producers I've asked if we, you know, because I know them to be very good. I think it will be a wonderful thing to hear. I think people need to hear what he's got to say. And I think the way he says it, I think we we should be able to hear it that way too. It's very, very complex with the politics of how you then cut. Because obviously you can compensate for the way he speaks in the cutting. Right. Do you or should you? I've obviously got a vested interest in hearing what's there and making a kind of physical intellectual effort to string it back together. So actually when I'm listening to him talk, it doesn't sound to me like it's interruptive, but equally right. I want somebody who's never heard him before to listen to him. And actually in the real world, that might be completely impossible to hear. I don't really know. So that, that would be a, that would be an interview. I would just, just love to work through. Mm. It's interesting what you say. I mean, I remember I interviewed Slavoj Žižek when he came to New York. And he, for people who don't know him, talks like he, 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 yeah, and there's yeah. a lisp and everything. Now, I come from a mother who has a lisp and is of Hungarian descent. So what is the most exotic possible accent speaking English is my mother's tongue that I've heard my entire life. It's yeah. perfectly normal mm -hmm. to, me to have yep. Dracula as a female speaking to me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But... But Slovenian with that weird lisp and whatever is going on with Zizek to give him, make him so frantic and jittery is a lot to deal with. And the first time I was introduced to him giving a lecture, I thought, I just can't listen to this. It's, mm. it's just too much. And my friend who introduced me to him said, I actually found it very serene. I can put it on in the background as white noise mm. yeah. and take a nap sort of thing. And, and I'm there now. I quite mm. I find it, I've gone to some of his lectures when he passes through New York and it's yeah. it's pleasurable. It's like when you're conscious of somebody's breathing while they're talking. The yes. inhalation sound can become quite distracting yeah. if you put your mind to it. It's funny. <laughs> well, I mean, so with uh, uh, the other side of this equation, I was interested in your perspective is what are what are interviews that you've read or portraits that you've read profiles? that influenced how you go about it because you have such a confidence when you're doing these these interviews and profiles um, structurally that I wonder just what informed that for you or was it intuitive? Um, it's pretty intuitive. It's a it's a radio thing. Hmm. It's uh, um, how to describe it. There's a there's a thing I actually discovered it by accident. I was doing a, a radio program about uh, meat, uh, masculinity, and nationality. I was really interested in the idea of uh, beef had been a, a, something that they celebrated as being a great symbol of Englishness in the uh, 1700s and so on. And there were, there were beef state clubs and things like that. Um, and I had reached that stage in my life where I thought I wanted to get a tattoo. 
Hmm. And I, I, I don't know if you can see it there. It's my arm says beef and liberty, which was <laughs> the motto of a of a, a beef uh, eating club uh, in in London. Twelve members. Um, and they would get together once a year, uh, cook a beefsteak and sing patriotic songs. Uh, and the idea was that the um, your Frenchman or your Italian would chop up their meat and have it with sauces and gravies and nonsense like that. But the true Englishman would have a proper English beefsteak. I thought that was important at the time. But I thought, OK, I'm going to have this tattoo. I'm not only that, I'm going to record this being done. And so I got my little recording gear and I went in and I, I found this guy who was a really, really good tattooist. He came out of retirement. So that was another story altogether. Uh, and uh, some saw some really, really weird things in this tattoo parlor where he was he was working on one man and one woman. That he'd been do, he was going to do for the rest of his career until they were entirely blackened out. But at that point, he was doing some incredibly weird Japanese work on the woman. And I sort of watched that being done, and that was quite strange. And we went deeper into the room, and I got into the chair and started talking. And I obviously have this thing whereby my brain's going about three lines ahead of what it is I'm saying. So I know what the next thing is I'm going to say. So I start chatting away, and he says, obviously, this is going to be interesting when you, you know, when the needle first hits you. And I'm saying, wait, well, I'm waiting for the needle. Really? And the needle hit, and... It's a, there are all those things about endorphins and uh, you know, disconnecting your mind from where the pain is and that kind of stuff. But it was just, I suddenly realized I'd just lost that thing. Huh. I couldn't do re recording in that moment. So I think for me, what I, I got taught very, very early on by some very good radio producers that it's, 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 it's creating the contact with the individual and then just letting it develop, but maintaining the eye contact and authenticity of listening to genuinely, I'm hearing you and what you're saying, and I'm listening to it and I'm interested at the same time as something else is ticking through my head, but my eyes don't go dead. <laughs> do, you know, do you know that thing? It's like, it, it's, it's not if you can't be authentic, learn to fake it, <laughs> but it is your ability to line up the next thing. The concentration you, you put into it is, absolutely huge um and it's i mean great. certainly if if i do a, if i do an hour of, of that i'm out for a day um but it's 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 a it's a definite thing so what so what i'll tend to do is is the prep um so i'll do loads and loads of research on people's backgrounds and their histories and everything else um i've got a little piece of software um which I think is designed for for uh, people who write um, sort of fantasy novels or something like that. But it's a it's a timeline maker. Huh. It's almost like a little toy device, but you can make a timeline when you're writing out your plot. And it's got a lovely interface that sort of works on the iPad. So actually, even I mean, when I was interviewing Len Dayton, he's got the most fantastic life. I knew I've got two hours with him. I want to make every second of radio count. I don't want there to be cuts. I don't want there to be breaths. I want a guy to be able to talk a lot and me not to talk very much, but I've got to be able to guide him and steer him. And actually, as I'm talking and as he's talking, I've got this slightly out of eye line and I can flick it sideways left to right. And I'm going, yeah, so that was it was 19. That was 68, wasn't it? That was just after you'd come back from Cyprus. Is that right? And, you know, that was that's a really, really useful tool because it's also keeping your mind going on where you are in some kind of line. And the rest of it is the is the is the the thing I think I learned in advertising, which is you've got to boil down 
I know they use it in screenwriting too. You have an arc of a story. It goes from A through B to C. And then every act has got to move you closer to it. And then in each act, each scene has got to get you in there and reflect back on the large A to C arc. And now when you do screenwriting, you do it by the beat. And so, you know, if you and I were looking at a screenplay now, we'd go through it. We would literally be saying that beat, that doesn't take it forward, does it out? Woof. And so I, my brain still think I, I, I will have, I'll have it in words or in sentences or in bullet points when I go into the interview. Where am I going with this and why? And I, I do, I kind of have that thing going back in my head. Uh, is this moving us forward? Is this moving us forward? So that, and that's the structure thing I also use in writing. And I mm. think it's, I mean, I have been told by editors that that's what keeps the, the pace on. Because I don't, I don't tend to over, overwrite. I mean, I, I, I tend to come in pretty much on, on word count and on length. So I'm not going thousands of words over. Um, and I'm, I'm abs an absolute slave to structure. Yeah. It's absolutely in my head where I'm hitting those beats and those moments. It is interesting, though, because I, I know exactly what you're talking about, and especially people who are themselves observers by profession mm. are disastrous to interview because it's all script. You could like the, mm. that nice dead thing you're talking about and very resistant to you trying to move them away from the script. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, Because I, I have a real ear for that, too. If I'm getting a pat answer, if I feel that this has been polished, which was my first resistance to Bourdain, back, just mm. to circle back, is mm. I didn't believe him for a second. I didn't believe his accent. I didn't believe the content. It all mm. seemed stage managed to me. Doesn't mean that I'm not interested in that, but I I didn't have, I think, the generosity of spirit. I was more defensive at that time um, to somebody that reminded me of me doing the same thing as a creative yeah. middle class yeah. kid kind mm. of thing. Yeah. Um, but I wonder how you confront that because, like, I'm a big fan of the BBC program um, Desert Island, where That's it's just desert on discs. Yes, yeah. Desert on discs. So, for the for those who don't know, I mean, I'm from Canada, where the BBC was very present in our household. That's not the case in the U.S. Here, um, it's just what records would you bring along with you to mm. to a desert island? And what I love is that it just drops the guard of all of the people talking and it's been on for i think 50 60 maybe longer yes, absolutely years. yep mm -hmm. so you can listen to raul Dahl, you know yeah. talk about his favorites um but it's just so disarming for the people involved whereas a, a lot of the nature of interviews is kind of confronting a person on what they don't want to talk about mm. yeah or finding a way into that sort of subject matter and i know with with some subjects like trying to broach with Mike Tyson about that he was molested as a kid, somebody mm. who celebrated himself as a victimizer um, to get at where he was victimized was ch very challenging. But once he made the confession that he was a, a victim of sexual abuse, I found it amazing that the next day, literally the next day before I typed the thing up, he is going on radio shows advertising it because he recognized the, pub the publicity advantages of yes. this recontextualization of his narrative. Yes. Very so much. for you, how do you deal with that when you've got somebody who's very media savvy? Um, how do you, I don't know if penetrate is the right word. Um, how do you access the real person behind the force field that they've created? I, it's, 
it's one of the reasons I don't like doing audio only uh, radio stuff. So we've we've done a few things over the last year where I've been talking to somebody and they've said, oh, it's a radio interview. I'd rather not be on screen. Um, whereas ordinarily I would go and hold the mic under their nose. And it's not even, it, it doesn't even need a script or a, a, it's not even a plan. The minute you see them, and you, and you can detect it, as can the audience. The minute they slot into the rails of the anecdote, as fact, wait, hang on, just one sec, go back. And it doesn't take a moment to just interrupt um, because they're going to go easily into one. And then you've got something much more interesting to get onto because you're always pressed for time or you should make it look like you are. And right. um, you know, that, I, I just think you can, you can see that coming. You see it in their eyes, that sense of relief. Oh, thank God, I can give story number five. That's great. Here we go. So listen, you won't believe what happened the day I met Michael Caine. Just stop, 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 back up. Whoa, hang on. So you can, I think you, that's, the, that's the thing to look out for, to be, able to be alive to, yeah. It's so interesting because I remember I remember interviewing a guy, a, a, an undefeated boxer in, in California, and for the first time ever, he was going to disclose his parental background, that is that his dad was a drug addict and that his mom also was um, addicted to crack cocaine and lived on the street. He had never discussed ever or confirmed any of these rumors, and he was ready to finally disclose it. So I fly out there and he gives me this, it was like a 1960s game show of this is your life. And I toured every home that his parents had ever lived in and every home that he had ever lived in as he's moving up the economic strata. And as he is show, showcasing all of this, these places, it was speech after speech after speech. After the interview came out, HBO cameras moved in and filmed him doing the exact same thing. The only difference was with cameras, he cried as he detailed the story. With me, there was no emotion. It was it was so on paper disclosive and emotionally completely mm. cynical <laughs> and just marketing. You know, it, it's it's funny you should say that. It was the thing that it was it was the one thing that really made me so cross with myself and so angry with Bourdain was. I interviewed him at one point and we went off, we went off piste and we were just chatting in a corner and he had, he said this thing and you, it turns out you would have heard this, but he said this thing about, uh, we talked about drugs and we talked about you know, drug, our, our various sort of drugs usage at different times. And he said, you know, it's a, uh, it's a weird thing. He says like, I go pretty much everywhere I go now and I'm giving some speech and some waitress will come up and ask me to sign her tits with a Sharpie. And some chef will turn up and, you know, slip me a wrap of cocaine. And and I remembered vividly how he said it. He said, I'm a dad now. You know, everything is rainbows and unicorns. Mm. And I just thought that is so sweet because that is that was exactly the stage I was in my life. I actually had a daughter the same age. And I felt that, you know, I'd, I'd, I mean, I'd, before she was born was a time I got into therapy to try and stop being such an abusive asshole with other people and stop taking you know, using drugs to make myself feel better about myself and it you know, and, and actually having a daughter made me you know a better person and a different person than a, a much cooler person and I was looking at him and I was thinking god man you this is why I like you because you're going through the same kind of stuff that I'm going through I don't know anybody else who's like that and could say that and that's so wonderful and I took that and for a couple of years I walked around with that in my heart and thought my god you know Tony said that to me, and that really, really felt something. And then I heard him saying it on telly. 
And then I, <laughs> then I looked right. it up and he said it like a dozen times, the same shtick. And he, that was, that was, I mean, I'm not, I, I can't, you know, hate the guy for it. I don't think he's an authentic because I do the same thing. You know, there are, even, you know, even now there are bits of things that I've said to you that I've said before to other people and part, parts of it, there'll be like, you know, it's like being a stand up comic, you know, everything I write, I've probably said four times at dinner to other people until I've taken the edges off that little riff. <laughs> you know? It's right. So there's this part of that There's part of that's, but also, and then when you've allowed yourself to think that there was something lovely in there and that you'd seen something else on the other side of it. And now it's starting to, I think so. I, I was really, really amazed by the, the feedback from the, uh, from the obit because mm. i just was it because i mean now he seems it, he's saint anthony the the dirty bits only are really there to even burnish the the same well, I'd, I'd never i'd never done an obit before um and it was nice of them to ask me because i think i'd done something about tony before that and so they thought i'd be a safe pair of hands we have a very weird thing over here uh with newspapers we have a we have an organization called the Samaritans, which is a, if you're feeling bad, you phone these people. And it's a telephone helpline of volunteers who will help you if, and the idea is they stop you committing suicide. They'll talk you down or talk you out. And that's what they do. So we have a pretty much standard system and it goes through all the newspapers, all the radio, TV, everything else. If you're doing an obit of somebody who has taken their own life, then you call this number and they have a media handling team who will talk you through what you are allowed and are not allowed to say. Now, this isn't in law. So if I said, you know, yeah, Tony did exactly the right thing. You know, wasn't that a glorious way to go out? If <laughs> Nobody's going to arrest me or tell me I'm wrong. Lots of people will write to the paper and say, that was against the regulations and the guidelines. You don't say that, that's wrong. Don't glorify. There are huge numbers of support organisations for the families of people who've committed suicide who would say, that's appalling. I want to see that man disciplined. But there's only one thing you can say about somebody who's committed suicide, and that's that they died. Usually then accompanied by some kind of, you know, at their own hand is about as far as you can then go. Even terms like committed suicide or committing took, his, took his own life and so on and so on and so on are so laden and so triggering for so many people that you can't really talk about it. Then you can't talk about any of the surrounding stuff because it's, you know, legals to hell. And then you can't even speculate about what sort of got those things into his head in the first place. Um, and then things start to come out. You know, things start to sneakily arise all around. But he was he was massively loved, you know, for for being all the things I liked about him, which was you know, he was he, he just seemed to be such a genuine kind enthusiastic cool he'd done all the bad things had put them behind him and didn't need to do them again which i think is what everybody of my age and my kind of background wants to be able to say about themselves like i aspired to be that kind of i certainly don't now but you know i aspired to be the guy who had you know who could tell waitresses no i'd love to sign your tits sweetheart but you know what we're not going to take that cocaine, no, because actually I'm over that and it's all rainbows and unicorns. I wanted that so much. I'm, I'm, I'm probably, by the look of it, I'm living it better than he, he did. <laughs> but 
yeah that's 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 that is a that's a truth i wanted that in him i think it's interesting because i i totally agree with your assessment but it reminds me i i was just looking i watched stand by me during the pandemic and to see river phoenix was interesting because you think whose career would he have had probably leonardo dicaprio yeah you know, better looking maybe a better actor yeah uh, Nothing against Leonardo DiCaprio, but I so I was going back to see who was this guy who who died because the first place I traveled to during the pandemic was Los Angeles, and I was staying on Sunset Boulevard next to where where he died yeah. of the drug overdose, and so I looked at some interviews of him when he was a teenager, and he said this very interesting thing that, um, con contrary to what we were talking about with people having scripts, I believe that he came up with this on in the moment. Um, he was asked by the interviewer, where do you think your talent comes from? Because you're preternaturally talented. Mm. You're clearly a prodigy. Um, where, what are you drawing from to be such a good actor? And he said, I never think about that. I think of that as like gold inside of hills. It's deposited there. I know it's there. I never want to excavate it. I never wanted to do any kind of survey of how much of it is there. I don't want to take it out and I don't want to sell it. I just want it to be there. And that's yeah. as far as I go with what my talent is. And, and I thought it's so antithetical to writers to have any gold in that we are script miners of anything that could be material in ourselves, in people we come across. We will fucking mine the shit out of it. Oh, but you know, for a long time after I'd left advertising, I had this weird job where I worked for a consultancy where we would train creatives in other agencies and companies. And it was really sort of woo-woo stuff. But, you know, we'd take them away for, you know, stay for a couple of weeks in some hotel somewhere up a mountain. And we were doing all this sort of hypnosis. And, and, and this is the way you come up with ideas. And I really, really believed in my heart that there was a secret to creativity and that it could be taught and it could be transferred. And as I've got older, I've realized that actually... I can I can take all the stimulus I want. I can chop it the different ways I know how to chop it. I could use any one of a thousand techniques to put things out on paper and post-it notes and cards and all that sort of stuff. I can find software that will do these things. But weirdly, the best stuff comes from being in the place with the person. Mm. I mean, even now, talking to you, of all the... I'm, look around. Just spin you around the room. I'm up, this place is just like full of books, films, cameras, equipment. I've got every bit of shit needed to feed a brain. Right. But you don't, it, that's, that's procedural. So you right. use that stuff to prepare yourself, but actually when you get into the, I imagine it's like playing, playing an instrument, like with other people that play an instrument, you do all the practice. So when you're actually performing, and I, every time, you know, over the last couple of years, every time I've done an interview, and I've been doing a lot more of it because, you know, there's lots of podcasting going on, there's lots of radio and audio work going on, and I just like doing it. You, you set things up before you go in, but the ideas come thick and fast. I'm going to come out of this, and there's 20 things I'm going to write down on a bit of paper. They're going to turn up going into it. This is going to this is the best my, my mind has I've written. I don't know, four features in the last two days. And, you know, I, I haven't had as many ideas in the process of writing that as I have in the last 20 minutes of talking to you. 
So mm. when you, I think when you go into an interview, if you have the self-confidence to do the, I know all the standards inside out. I play this instrument really well. Now let's go on stage and see what the audience are like tonight and, you know, what the piano player is going to do and is the drummer feeling good and okay, and now let's go. Well, you're, I, 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 that's think, what he's I think that's what he's talking about. I think you're right. And I think also it's, it's like this delineation and I think there's a lot of confusion about this. I always found it very strange to hear that what Michael Jackson is doing makes him the greatest entertainer in the world because all of his performances, and I'm not taking away from what he's doing, but it is completely a paint-by-numbers exercise mm -hmm. in a static environment in which you are trying to achieve perfection. Mm. As opposed to, uh, I had my best friend growing up, his mom went to see the Beatles when they came to Vancouver in, I think, 1963 or 64. Yeah. It was a horrible concert. Yeah. It was, everything played quadruple time, they were in and out in 20 minutes, and it was mesmerizing. Mm. And when you go back and watch Beatles performances, one of the things that's so magical about it is not that they're the greatest musicians ever or they're playing a perfect rendition of what you've heard on the record. It's that they're present, that you don't know if John Lennon is going to imitate somebody with cerebral palsy out of nowhere or <laughs> spewing Japanese. Yeah. And then you're watching Paul break down laughing as it's mm. happening. And then George sees Paul and he starts laughing. Ringo is just Ringo. There's you. It's so present in the moment to something that is brand new and authentic and genuine and not perfect or beautiful. And I think that that's part of the reason why Michael Jackson recognized I don't have the creativity to compete with the quote unquote best that's mm. come before me. I can do something that's more successful than it. So you notice him moving to the metrics of not artistic bars to surpass, but commercial bars to yes. surpass. And hopefully people will conflate that with I'm better. I'm a better entertainer because more people have paid to watch it. Kind of in the Warhol sense of what's, how do we measure a work of art? Who can get more money for it is what distinguishes what's better. And I always but this, thought, yeah. I don't know, there's something about, something about the mechanics of performance that makes it different though. I mean, I've, I've, I've got to believe that at some point, right the way from the time he was being abused as, you know, little Michael, you know, he, he was a musician of unbelievable talent. Sure. In certain circumstances and such a hard worker. And so about repetitive drilling that he would make product that worked with repetitive drilling. It, Michael Jackson's stuff in the, in the, in sort of the two great albums, it's so undeniably locked down, locked tight, brilliant. It's not just it's not just because it was devised cleverly. It was devised to be lockdown brilliant. Yeah, you know but he was only ever going to make the glossiest pop in the history of pop. He was just going to make it funkier. I, I think you're right, but I think it's kind of like the impact and legacy of let's say Amy Winehouse, hmm. where nobody was going there to see. Obviously, she was enormously, gigantically talented. But also there was something human, there was frailty, there was, because it was really a struggle for her to keep it together, it mm. imbued that aspect of the personal into the professional in a way that Beyonce is immaculately perfect. Mm -hmm. She's in Tiffany ads right now yeah, with her yeah, husband. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And 
nobody is looking at her music and saying this conveys a lot more emotional resonance of the the human condition than Billie Holiday. No, it's technically better than Billie Holiday, but it's not anywhere close to what Billie Holiday could achieve artistically. And that's intriguing to me because it's not Billie Holiday is not doing that on any level by her technical supremacy. It's tapping into something else. Just as Michael Jackson having a, a, a great theatrics and dancing and dancers behind her and all of that is not there to add to his creativity. It's there to distract you from the lack of creativity that my words don't mean anything. But it, but it, but it, but there has there has to be balance. I mean, I've, I've, I'm of the age now where I just basically think everybody under 50 is emotionally incontinent. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, this is it's great, but I just genuinely I, I don't want your book about your tedious little personal struggle with something or other, you know, because it's just dull. And I don't want I mean, well, nobody has albums anymore, but I'm not even interested in hearing a track about how you broke up with your girlfriend. It's just it's so fucking dull and yeah. self-obsessed and self-interested. And it doesn't reflect on the grand. It actually and. We're not listening to that stuff because it speaks to us and helps us a lot of the time. And, it, and I think Amy was the one where it really pushed over. Right. I mean, when when Billie Holiday was singing or many of the young female songwriters of the early 60s, there was something in there that was talking to the, the trapped shit awfulness of the lives of the real women that were carrying on in the Absolutely. world at that time. Absolutely. Amy Winehouse, you're looking at it and going, Jesus, she's a car wreck. And I'm going yep. to watch this because it's a car wreck and, and, and not because she's talking to me about how I feel. And I, I, I think that's, that's a, that's a difficulty. And it's something when we talk about trying to get more emotion or more emotion, the access and what we do, we've got to discipline that with the other side of it. I think I mean, some of the, some of the people we've talked about today, to be honest, are profoundly unemotional. Right. I mean, you're not getting any of the great outpouring of why Hunter Thompson was such a deranged fuck up. You know, we're still talking about it today, years later. You know, Bourdain was a lovely, he gave a lovely warmth to what he was doing that makes the most astonishing people love him now. I, I haven't even, I mean, for somebody who was such a, a, a macho pinup for men, I still haven't heard a woman talking about him in a way that doesn't sound like she'd half want to mother him, half want to sleep with him. He was so brilliant at putting that and now we're sitting here looking at the absolute ipso facto evidence that none of us had the faintest fucking idea what his emotions were right he's a, he's he's such a warm guy he's so in touch with his own feelings that's what i believe when he was talking about rainbows and unicorns and then he goes and he's not he wasn't talking about anything that was of any relevance whatsoever he was playing a fantastic role of sensitive man so i i don't know i think i think we we seesaw backwards and forwards with those things, but we do need to to watch the balance. I'm I'm reticent. I'm I'm too British sometimes about these things. <laughs> I, do, I don't I don't pursue the emotional. I don't think that's my job. Um, and I think I should be able to find more things in people that are interesting or new or funny is also good. Sure. Um, you know, there are plenty of people who want to go in there, dive straight in with the. You know, so you, your kid died when you were, you know, in your early twenties. That's pretty. Uh, that's got. That's got to suck. Tell me how you feel about that. Like, oh Jesus, you know. I, I think. I think what I'm trying to get at though is just the marketing side of these things because, yes. I mean, it's 
it's we think that it works in opposition, but actually there's a, com a complete convergence in the number one reason why people read is almost the same reason of, of how to succeed with advertising something empathy that your audience achieves empathy with your product. And and so when I think about the Bourdain, the construct, I mean, I began finding a hero out in the culture to deal with my problems with Mike Tyson because I thought this is the most masculine secure person in the world physically from a bullying incident I thought I'm just not safe I can't leave my front door if I had to have one person to protect me it would be him and then I heard an interview with him and I discovered that he had come from the same emotional place as me he'd been yeah. bullied he could never stand up for himself he was terrorized in his environment I thought boy I've never heard somebody speak so articulately and sensitively about the feeling of fragility of, of just not being safe in your identity. How did he get from there to where he is now? And if he was using his cowardice to create this construct of masculinity, because when you really kind of break it down, Mike Tyson is not a masculine person. He, yeah. he is the definition of, of kind of a caricature of a gay man. And it all seems fake. Even even him talking about womanizing and and even when he's trying to intimidate other men, he's using a lot of like gay prison talk. I'll mm -hmm. fuck you till you love me, faggot. Like think mm. of the emotional mechanics of that construction. Yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. Um, and so when I think about Bourdain, also it's just kind of like just what you're saying. It is creating. It's like what dating is now. It's all a job interview for you to tinker your resume. For the person you you want to end up with, in a way, yeah. you're not present in the moment um, to to even see where this will go. If the boxes aren't checked, you mm -hmm. just summarily dismiss it, and you you are spewing this resume of what would make you most desirable to, I guess, the broadest swath of people that you're seeking out. Yes, mm -hmm. it's. So I don't know. I'm always wondering that with the culture is is sort of thinking of people as drugs, trying to get the world addicted to them and and to look at which people are the most successful at doing that and often it's like mike 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 michael jackson in his peak was the broadest success story of a celebrity maybe in history and he is obviously the one of the weirdest people ever and kind of in in plain sight um only seemingly sexually attracted to children in a possessive way and people were just kind of like it can be true if it was true we would never do this in public yeah uh so i don't know i i find that that's just a habit i can't get out of is just sort of scratching how did this person get here and how did they create this that was successful and bourdain as you say is such an unbelievable success story in packaging and the suicide in many respects has only made it more successful i, I suppose the, the question might be is is the interview still a route to get to any truth hmm. do you think it is it's almost impossible to find anybody now that you can talk to that isn't speaking as if they know you're interviewing them. So I mean, even even sort of BBC Vox Pops, you know, you 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 people know what they're saying. They know they know how to handle the media. We're in a, we're in a, a sort of post. This is we're getting beyond where McLuhan ever imagined it might be. But mm. everybody's a bit media. Everybody owns a bit of media. Everybody makes a bit of media. Everybody knows how to behave on it. We're constantly in a position of 
presenting ourselves. I don't and know who we reveal ourselves to. Oddly, yeah. because the notion of total self-revelation comes from a time when it was perhaps more difficult to do, we value it greatly. And I sometimes wonder if we don't overvalue it. Mm. So there's a, there's a you know, I, I need people to be really, really, truly authentic. And to quote Jack Nicholson, you know, <laughs> authentic, you can't handle authentic. Right. You know, maybe you don't want people to be to be completely honest and completely open because they're quite boring. Right. It's a very, I, I'm funny. I'm, I'm listening to an audio book of uh, an English comedian. Nobody, uh, he'll be irrelevant to most of your listeners, uh, but he's done this book, which he's clearly it's an audio book, and he's clearly dictated it. Um, and he his shtick is that he's a a really ordinary working class bloke who has suddenly been sort of thrust into this limelight of being, you know, one of the funniest comedians of his generation. And he he carries this through. And I find myself halfway through this thing thinking, this is really weird because it's rubbish writing. I mean, it's really bad. I don't want to read your autobiography. I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, I'm listening to this because it sounds like you're talking to me in the pub. And I've got this notion somewhere that I really would love to be sitting in the pub with you telling me this shit. This is kind of cool. I like that bit of it. But also I know that I've heard these anecdotes before and I know you even say at the beginning of it because it's part of your ordinary guy shtick. You know, well, maybe about 90% of this is correct, but maybe about 10% of this is probably lies. And you think it's, that's also that's massively inauthentic in itself. I don't know where I am or why. Actually, what I like is when you're being funny. And I don't have to worry about whether you're being authentic or not. You know, just do your do your thing. And I'm sure you're great. Let's go have a beer. But <laughs> I, don't know, but this, I don't know what we need. But this is really interesting because, like, I noticed when I was looking at some of the blurbs for your book, like Simon Sharma um, was one of the names on there. And I love I've loved one of his programs, The Power of Art. I, it's a oh, yeah. rewatchable for me yeah. endlessly. And he says something very similar to what we're talking about with Rembrandt, that Rembrandt had all of these businessmen in Amsterdam who were the wealthiest people in the world who were trying to usurp the, the power structure of we want to be the top dog. We're not military people, but we can present an image as if we were so that people will valorize us even more than, than great conquerors and that sort of thing. But Rembrandt was obsessed with not the image they were presenting, but the scaffolding they were building to present it. Yes. And, and I think that we've all become savvy to that as well, that with these Instagram curated lives and stage managed lives, we're all looking at from the passion, trace the wound. And, and we're never looking at what's presented anymore. It's a deconstruction of what is being presented to see the lie and the truth. Kind of, kind of, that's part and parcel, which is weird that we're now um, so forced to do this because most of the lives we're living are behind a screen. I mean, most of our emotional lives are behind a screen is kind of what I'm getting at. I remember mm. South Park made that observation. I don't know. We don't know how to tell contemporaneous American lives anymore because it would just be you found out your dad died on your phone or your right. I, your iPad or whatever. People are not living their emotional lives with eye contact. No, it's, but, it's predominantly with their email and <laughs> phone and text message. But but that's also well. It's, it's, it's again. It goes back to that sort of post post McLuhan post mass meet post. 
mass media thing, which is that most of the the, the people that you and I sort of set our lives on, modeled our lives around, were very much models of a mass medium. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and we've in literally the last decade, we've moved into a world where it's very much not mass. Um, but the area is gray, which is I can reach more people with a tweet today than uh, Elizabeth David published her first book to. I mean, that, you know, and it's, it's meaningless that, that, that those two figures, they just happen to be, you know, (laughs) interestingly comparable, you know, that's just, that's just bizarre, but it's, but it's there. And, you know, everybody that we look back at you know they've they've reinvented their lives the the lives that we look at by the time their lives ended the possibility of finding out more about them had gone and they enclosed that life and that life was closed around them in the model they wanted to leave behind Mm. that may not be possible anymore but i don't know where that's going either but we're we're not asking enough questions about who wants what out of what Qui, yeah, qui, what is it, qui bono? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, but, me... but, but at the moment, nobody's bonoing, by the way, because, because yeah. nobody's making any money out of any of this shit. And actually, we're an entirely new economy, whereby the celebrities are, are actually people who can most afford to give the most of themselves away without getting paid for it. Interesting. I mean, that's a, that's a complete reversal of the mechanics of it, where you originally you had gatekeepers who would control your access to the mass media. And if they could make money out of filtering you out through it, they'd let you be on their TV channel or join their record label or be on their radio program or something like that. And the money came in, that was fine. You got some of that money. They got some of that money. That was terrific. Now, those guys are out of the picture. And it's... I will probably, you know, I could might, I could maybe raise enough profile if I did nothing but podcast for the next five years and put a load of money into the production values of it and promoting it and the advertising and everything else. If I spaffed money into that process for long enough, I might be able to get enough profile to do what? I don't know. Maybe, maybe for six weeks, I'd be famous enough to promote a training shoe or a right. boat, a car. And then, then I'm forgotten again. And it doesn't, that even that, that doesn't work literally got a question what's it for that's fascinating and i think you're absolutely right i mean contending with you know i remember one time doing doing a story that that came out and there was a quick message from lance armstrong and quickly him saying gonna come to new york we need to meet and discuss something and it was do you want to ghostwrite my biography and i just thought it was funny that there's only the same sports pages for everybody. Like Lance Armstrong being worth 125 million doesn't have access to a better ESPN. Yeah. There's just one. It's like yeah. what Warhol said, the great thing about America is, is the Coca-Cola I'm drinking is the same one a homeless person could drink or the president. There's not a special Coke, no. you know, it, there's just Coke. Mm-hmm. And, and so we're all kind of contending with this weird version of celebrity on a an enormous continuum, but it's the same dynamic that we now all are thrown into. There's just one Twitter. <laughs> like this. So I'm, I'm I'm working on a piece at the moment. It'll be coming out in the, in the FT in a, probably in a month or so. Uh, it's a, we're doing a women's uh, section, uh, and they asked me to who I, who do I think was the most influential woman in food globally in the last year. So there are lots of people who are being quite vocal in different countries about, you know, getting women into food and drink and that kind of stuff. And it was all quite interesting. I said, but there's one person who's done 
be more, in terms of influence more than anybody else. And I can't even remember her name now because I can't pronounce it. She was a Finnish girl who on TikTok came up with a recipe for feta pasta. Huh. Now, this was global for about six days. <laughs> and it was a bigger influence worldwide than anything Nigella's done or Martha Stewart has done or Ina Garten has done or any of those people who a couple of years ago we might have put on our front cover. Sure. This girl has blown them all out of the water. So we start discussing this and trying to deconstruct what this means. So I said, you know, nobody even remembers her name now. She was so huge. She was bigger than God for three days. Did it even affect feta sales? Hmm. And somebody went off and, you know, they, they did a search and they came back all smug and said, yes, yes, look, look, there was a huge increase in demand for feta in America, Australia, pretty much across the, all the Anglophone countries. You couldn't get feta in the supermarkets for three days. So I called my mate, who's an old advertising chum, who's he's quite big in Saatchi's at the moment, and he's good on the sort of advertising theory. And I said, well, tell me about this whole thing. I mean, you guys worried about the, you know, is this the future about how are we going to do this stuff? And he said, it's, well, it's like the butterfly effect, isn't it? He said, you know, you can trace it backwards. And it's amazing that a storm in China, we've now got the computers to prove that it was a butterfly in Belgium. Huh. Only problem is you can't do a butterfly in Belgium and predict it the other way. It's literally a one-way process. Right. So that girl affected feta sales. We can't do anything to make that happen again in any direction. And he says, you know what's really worst of all? If you talk to anybody in the feta industry, that's the worst possible thing that could have happened to them. Because within half a day, everybody had run out of their product. And you know that for two years afterwards, nobody like, fuck, I don't want feta again. No, forget it. It's like, it's not, it, it, it's made her rich because somebody will think, oh, that's the feta girl. I'll get her on my uh, Limburger project. And some money will change hands for that. But they won't be able to do it again in any way. And that's right. the kind of fame, I mean, I'm talking about that in advertising terms. That's advertising fame and advertising clout and influence. And we talk about those people as influencers. But until right. we can actually use that, control it and monetize it. We can't do it. We can't do it in politics. We can't do it in advertising. We can't actually harness this thing. Actually, what it is is massive fragmentation of the media. Right. Not just the change. People love the idea. We've got all these exciting new media. Everybody's going to be a maker. We can make ads in that medium. No, you can't. It just doesn't work anymore. The whole structure doesn't work anymore. And right. I, I think that's true of writing. I think that's true of interviewing i think that's true of celebrity and you know we're, yeah. we're at the cutting edge of part of this because we're trying to take people and use the medium to transmit their personality and their marketable part of themselves to an audience of people we're in that we're right on the front line and right. we can't even predict how that's been over the last six months and we're looking back to things that were happening in the last century about and, and trying to apply those rules to our world going forward. That's the kind of scary part for me. Well, and I, I think there's another one kind of inverse to this that's also intriguing. I did a story for Bloomberg about this woman that I'd read about many years ago when I was 20, I think. Hmm. And there was mention that she had secretly brought a recorder to record J.D. Salinger's voice when he showed up for an interview. Yeah. And Nobody ever asked, subsequent to this interview being published by George Plimpton in the Paris Review, 
what happened to that recording? So I tracked her down on Facebook, and after three months, she replied, I'm not selling you the fucking tape. Well, I, I don't want the tape. But I did want to ask who, who verified that the tape existed. Hmm. Um, are any of these people still alive? This is from 1980. And we began this like nine-hour marathon conversation discussing 1980, she's 40 years old, her life is in crisis, and I need to do something of meaning. I've just had breast cancer. I'm going to track down the hardest interview in the world to get, J.D. Salinger. Hmm. And I've always been intrigued by how uncomfortable Salinger retreating is hmm. for the culture right now, where everybody wants to sell everything and put everything hmm. forward and look, 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 look at me. What if you, you're at the most prestigious publication in the world with The New Yorker? You have a book that revolutionizes the world in many respects. It sold more copies. I think it sold 75 million copies worldwide since it came out. And then at 34 years old, you basically disappear to a town of 400 people mm. and essentially say, it's enough for me to just write for myself. I don't need to share it. I don't need to be published. I don't need to be interviewed. I just want to be left alone, please. Can you just leave me alone to do my work? Mm. And it may, and everybody makes it out to, that he must be suffering from some kind of psychosis, or he's a horrible person, or he's hiding something. Where you'd think, isn't this an example of somebody like to be content? Um, isn't that a good thing? But, well, according to capitalism, it's the worst thing imaginable to not want to. You, know, <laughs> well, you, you, you can't have it without constant growth. And the yeah, idea of actually retiring and stepping out of it is, uh, you can't do that, no. <laughs> you can't do it. So I just wondered, like, what you, like, for you, I mean, at this stage in your career, I know you have a, a bakery. If I come to England, I'm definitely going to try. <laughs> well, so, yeah, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> but but do, do you have any kind of internal battle with that about what the, your public self and what you want to share with the world? You have a, a large audience. Um, versus the part of you that would just like to, you know, the, as we are as writers, we're introspective. What we do is an antisocial act in a lot of ways. I, it's, it's interesting. I, I, I came to this uh, sort of quite late in life, and I've been quite successful in a field that a lot of people wanted to be in, in sort of advertising and, and media before that. So I, I made money and been successful. Um, and it, it wasn't terribly, you know, sort of fulfilling or, or, or great. Um, and I, when I got into this, uh, there are a lot of people with a lot less profile than me who think of themselves as more famous. Mm. You don't need much to start thinking of yourself as a celebrity. I just completely don't do that. And I, I don't think I ever will. I don't think I'll ever need to. And I kind of withdraw from things if they get into those into those kind of areas. I don't have any conflict in it because it's just it's a great gig. It's a great life. I get to write about stuff because people come to me and say, write some stuff. And in between, I'm running a nice little business with some great people I like working with, and that's nice. I live in a nice place I don't I don't want for cash. Um, so I'm kind of, you know, that's, that's all great. I don't really have, I, I like an audience very much. I enjoy that immensely. Um, but equally, that's one of the reasons I still use and most most of the writers I know who are also sort of columnists at this scale in various papers, they drop out of social media. That's the, the classic thing you do. And I don't. I just stay on it and I keep blurting out sort of random politics and and gags. And um, I, I use it. I, I use it like a stand up comic would use the pub. Um, you know, I, I very often just say I wake up and the first thing in the morning, I've got some rant in my head. And I'll start banging it out on Twitter. 
and people will come back on it and i'll you know that i, I kind of like that I mean, i've done a couple of pieces where i've just i've just taken a chunk out of twitter stuck it down and that's the format for what the way this story this this rant this riff is going to go and i i but i also think that that's some i don't have a problem with the fact that you also give a lot of that stuff away yeah i kind of like i see that as a as a constantly running cocktail party and every time i turn up i want to i want to give it some value and i don't think every time i use a gag there i can't use it on the radio or i can't use it in a magazine and it's not like there's a finite amount of of it that you've got to hoard it to yourself so I don't, I don't know. I mean, I just, it all feels just kind of, I just feel, I feel lucky that people laugh when I write a joke. I think that's nice. I think it's really good. Like, I get really thrilled when, when people write something nice under something I've written, when, when a, a nice response. Somebody wrote a thing the other day, you know, that opening paragraph was pure gold. I, I don't know who you are, but you've made my whole day. <laughs> a couple of days ago, I was, this is, you know, I don't, I don't often get sad. A couple of days ago, I was doing a recording for a radio program. It was with a Canadian uh, academic, actually. And she was a young, uh, uh, quite a, um, a sort of a media don, as they call them here in Cambridge. Somebody who's a, an academic, but is very, very good at being on the, on the media. She obviously wasn't that good because she was in the booth and recording at the other end. And she had a hot mic and she didn't know it. And she came off and she said something just sort of, incredibly belittling about my voice and the other guys who were talking to and everything else and i was just heartbroken for two days and it doesn't matter wow. it so doesn't matter but it's like it's so i it's something weird about this this environment this world i i don't i'm not a journalist like thompson was a journalist i'm not a writer like Hemingway was a writer. I'm not a radio personality like some radio personalities. Were. I'm I'm so part of the new part of this that I'm just lucky to be parts of all the little fragments. I'm like a bit of a content monger, and I write some good gags sometimes, and I tweet some good gags sometimes, and I say some funny things on the radio sometimes. But I can't, I couldn't measure myself against the standards of even ten years ago of the people who were successes in those areas. So it's not even really a question of being a celebrity because i don't think i've i don't think i take celebrity seriously in celebrities because it's total bollocks so i'd be an idiot to apply it to myself and start thinking that way i'm just a i'm a mouthy show-off that i've always been in whatever social media i was a mouthy show-off at school i was a mouthy show-off at college i've been a mouthy show-off in kitchens because i like people laughing at my jokes but it's never it's not it's not got much bigger than that, even though the audience, the strangely fragmented audience is out there. You know, and I could probably tell a joke now and get, you know, a, a portion of a million or two people to laugh at it. But, I, you know, it doesn't that doesn't make any difference to it being the same thing. I think that's a, that's a God, I've never really thought about it that way before. But it's just because I don't. Because I don't buy into the celebrity thing much anymore for anybody. I can't take it seriously in myself. But I really like what you're saying. It reminds me of something I think John Lennon said in 1970 when he was interviewed by Rolling Stone, where he was asked, do you think you're a genius? And he said, I, I don't know what a genius is, but if there is one, yes. But I'm not a genius because you think I am or because of some album I've done. I've been like this my whole life. <laughs> the, the world, the, like, give me a tuba and I'm going to give you something interesting. But I, it, it seems just similar to what you're saying, that there's a signal to who Tim is that's been there all the way along. And, 
you know, the audience grown and it's it's been channeled into these different fields of work. But but I get that sense of you too that there is a big feeling of gratitude that is very comforting to be around. Like even if I'm watching your social media or talking to you now or or having our conversation, um, a lot of people you you do not feel gratitude for them to be who they are in the world and and to have the people around them that they do. It is it is a, especially with creative types. It's a really rare feeling. They seem like very needy people who are obsessed with kind of grievance a lot of the time. They, yeah. they do not. They, yeah. I, I can't can never understand why people have Twitter spats. And don't just shut the fuck up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, stop. Back out. Go away. This will die. Don't worry about it. No, I, I, yeah. Actually, I think part of it might go back to to rather than going to university, I went to art college and when art colleges back then, you, it was almost like there were craft skills. You trained in a lot of different things. So mm. I learned to do printing. I learned to, to use a printing press. I learned to, to draw, photograph, make recordings, use a video camera, blah, 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 I mean, all of those things. Yeah. And actually, as I've gone on, I didn't use any of those particular skills or talents to the career I was supposed to use them in. But I always just watched as all of the ways of doing them got easier and easier and easier. Mm. And actually, I, what feels lovely to me is, is I can carry on being the same person, but I can deliver through so many media now because the technology and the kit and the gear and and the media as a whole, that's kind of what I've always understood. I, I was a complete McLuhan freak at college. I just loved everything Marshall McLuhan ever wrote. He seemed so prescient. And when I worked in advertising, it was so much like that notion of you know, medium's message, you had to get all of that stuff was so, so cool. And now I'm just, it's like, a, that's a playground I find myself in. And I mm. find there are lots of really nice and easy tools that enable them to do it. So actually, you think of something funny, or you think of something, you know, it might be perceptive, something that might educate people or even just entertain them for five minutes. I've got half a dozen things, you know, within t keyboard distance of where I am to get those out. And why wouldn't I? Because it's nice when people like them. Right. I'm not going to get rich doing it. I think that generation's passed. Yeah, it does seem that way, doesn't it? <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> I'm, I'm even lucky that I've got the, 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 the leisure time to do it, and then you know, people tolerate me doing it. It's great. <laughs> Last question. What is What would you say at your bakery is the greatest thing that you offer there? Bacon roll. Bacon roll? A bacon roll, yeah. So, no, when we took the bakery over there, you, you, if you're going to have a coffee shop or something like that, the breakfast... The breakfast of champions in England is a bacon roll. It's three rashes of bacon, three pieces of bacon in a in a bread roll. And the bread rolls weren't good enough. And we had a bakery and we were actually making more cake than we were making bread. And then there was another bakery that we bought some rolls from where they were good. And I ended up buying that bakery because they made really good rolls. And then we worked on the roll for years, getting it better and better. It's a kind of oval shape, so you can get three rashes in it better. And there's a special brown sauce that we use that's only available kind of in England, but we pimp it a particular way. It's just a big, greasy, fat piece of, it's a tr it's truck driver food. It's lovely. That's the best thing ever. Interesting. All right, that's what I'm going to order. <laughs> Tim, it's been two hours. This was great fun. Thank you so much for your time. Absolute pleasure. I loved it. Thank you very much indeed. Likewise. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcon Swaby and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Thanks for listening.